0: Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoone. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I am back again for another amazing episode, number 166. I can't believe I've been doing the podcast this long. I've thought a lot about why I'm still doing the podcast. Um, And you know what? The answer is very simple. It makes me happy. Boom. So even when we're going through these crazy times, which we are all dealing with, we know we're not alone but in fact we are sort of alone because we can't actually hang out with each other and help each other we can only do that virtually right now (laughs) so during these crazy times we need to find identify and choose to include in our lives those things that continue to make us happy i was doing a quick little 20 minute yoga wake my body up session with my daughter wilder this morning and we chose the episode because it was called Finding Optimism. And uh, in the episode, the actual workout was called Finding Optimism. And it was, you know, just like a short little quick yoga wake up. But the question the instructor posed today was, what if something amazing happens today? Can you go about your life and your day with that thought in your mind instead of the polar opposite, which many of us are constantly thinking about. So I invite all of you right now to refresh your mindset with this question, what if something amazing happens today? I need to hold on to that. You know I am the queen of all things positivity and uh, just like a normal human being, I also occasionally struggle. So this was a really important message for me to hear today. And today's guest is really going to help drive it home for you. Um, before I introduce Katie Hoff, Olympic swimmer and legend, um, I also want to share a little something about my personal life, my business life, Skirt Sports. Um, anybody who follows Skirt Sports is in the inner fold or uh, reads press releases knows this. I am actively seeking a new owner for the business. I know. That's crazy and it might come as a surprise for some of you, but the truth is I've been doing this for 15 years and I love everything I have created about skirt sports. I really do. I love all the challenges it's given me, those growth opportunities, if you will. I love the, the super high highs, the crazy awesome ride that I've been on. Um but it's been it's been a long time and there's other things calling to me. And the weird thing is it's the worst time in history to try to find a new owner. Or is it? I mean that's really truly the question. It might be, it might not be, but the truth is it's the right time for me. Um I plan to do a an episode in the very near future talking about this journey, this process, um and where I am right now as I navigate these sort of turbulent waters. In the short term, definitely support Skirt Sports. Like every business out there, unless you make toilet paper or virtual conference calls, um, pretty much everybody's struggling. And, and Skirt Sports is no exception. So this makes it also a trickier time. So please get over there and, and check out Skirt Sports. We are gonna be running all kinds of crazy promotions um, over the next few months. So on another note, what if something amazing happens today? Well, guess what? Something amazing is happening today. You are just about to hear from a delightful person, um, just a, a wonderful human being. Her name is Katie Hoff. She is a multi-time Olympian. She qualified for her first Olympics when she was 15 years old, I am not kidding you. Um, she swam at the top level of the, of the sport for a good decade um, with a lot of ups and downs. And at the end of the line, when she was trying to make another a comeback to qualify for the 2016 Olympics, her first one was 2004, she was trying to qualify for her fourth Olympics in 2016, um, she, uh, she ended up with a major health issue. Turned out she had blood clots in her lungs and they weren't diagnosed right away. And so they left quite a bit of scar tissue, which left her functioning at less than 100% and anything less than 100% when you are trying to compete at the top level in the world is not good enough. So Katie retired. She retired when she really in her heart didn't want to, but at the end of the day, that is the hand she was dealt and I think her message and her story is really cool because it's still a work in progress, like all of us. Um, she is shifting in her life. And what she's doing and what she's done since retirement is what many of us do when we're seeking something new. We try new things and we flail around and we go through all the emotions because, you know, a lot of those things don't hold up to your old standards and our old standards. So Katie today is super open. She's super awesome. And the lesson she shares, um, can really be related to anybody at any stage in their lives. All right, that's it. Let's bring her on. Oh my gosh. I love it. Um, wow. Well, really, really cool to be sitting here with you, Katie. You're like, you know, I grew up swimming. And so I, you weren't in my, let's just say, the decades that I swam hardcore, you were just sort of being born. But I have <laughs> definitely followed swimming like a super groupie through, over all the years. And anybody who's a swimmer, you know, has definitely knows who you are so it is a Thank super you. honor to be sitting here looking at you virtually across the interwebs today.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, your story is super cool. I mean, many chapters have like passed by now in your life. Um, and I think there's a lot of different topics I want to hit on, but I just, I kind of feel this need to start at the beginning with you and just sort of lay out that early path towards swimming superstardom. <laughs> so yeah, you were, you were born in Palo Alto, right?
1: Yeah, I was born in Palo Alto. Um, my mom and dad actually both went to school at Stanford. My mom actually played basketball at Stanford, Stanford, and she was, like, she's still, like, third all-time point scorer for basketball. Um, so I can do a little, little brag there. Um, I inherited zero of her hand-eye coordination, unfortunately. <laughs> I am not good on land in any stretch of the imagination. Um, but that's how we kind of ended up there. Um, we had some family there. And then Really, only till I was about five, um, and then we moved my dad's job moved, and then we wanted to be closer to uh, my grandparents in Williamsburg, Virginia. so we moved to the east Coast uh, when I just turned five.
0: okay, so a couple funny things. Well, first of all, was your mom tall?
1: Yeah, so my mom <laughs> just I think now she's probably five eleven but she was like six, just like six feet so she wasn't like crazy tall, but I definitely got, um, you know, I'm 5'11", so I got some height from her for sure.
0: Yeah, I love it when you wear six-inch heels.
1: Yeah, I <laughs> love it. I'm, like, my husband like, embraces it. I'm like, honey, I'm going to be maybe taller than you. On our wedding day, I wore flats, but, um, you know – I love wearing heels. Like I'm a huge, like six inch, like just rock it out person. (laughs) So um, I don't think it matters how tall you are.
0: (laughs) I mean, that's part of you, you know, it's own it, right? You just got to own it and embrace it. Um, The other thing you brought up just now is like just something hilarious. Um, Having grown up a swimmer myself, I, I don't know if I coined the term, but we always called ourselves land dorks. Like, we could not do jack on land. I mean, put us in the pool and we were, you know, fish and mermaids and whatnot. But, like, that hand-eye coordination thing, I never really got it. I still don't really have it. (laughs) I know. And it's so
1: sad because it was very early on. Like, I distinctly remember... Like one of the years I was in public school and we were at gym class. And so they would be giving us grades for, you know, running a mile and pull-ups. And I was always really good at that stuff. And then there was one for literally like throwing a ball and catching a ball. And I get a D and I'll, it's the only D I've ever received in my entire life. And I was devastated um, by it and after that, it was
0: just all downhill from there. So. I mean, it's kind of interesting because there's, you know, for a lot of things in our lives, there's this concept of nature versus nurture, right? Yeah. Well, your mom was like the ultimate hand-eye coordination person. Yeah. But you didn't necessarily inherit that. I wonder if you had worked at it hard enough or if you had naturally gravitated to a different sport, ha- were, would you have been able to reach a similar pinnacle you know that's
1: a good question I don't know because I mean I definitely didn't do a lot of it and so I I started swimming when I was five so there may have been I don't think I would be quite as inept as I am today which to my husband who played football I can't even throw a football around with him so I think I'd maybe be average or maybe above average but definitely not where she was or not you know Olympic level but yeah you make a good point with that
0: Oh my gosh! Well, um, so let's let's move into your swimming then. So you said you started swimming at five, and this was when you'd already moved away from California.
1: Yeah. So we moved to Williamsburg, Virginia, Um, and so there was a summer swim league team uh, called the Kings Point Dolphins. And I there was like this older kid in the neighborhood who was doing it, and we knew their family. And I thought this kid was so cool. He's like three years older than me, and I told my mom immediately, like, I, I want to try out for the team. Um, and it didn't last very long actually, because I was at this point skin and bones. Like I could not keep weight on my mom was force feeding me like boost and insure and like all the things like old people take. So they keep weight on, um, like a blizzard from Derek Green now and then, but I got so cold that I actually decided. So I would say I retired for a year. Um,
0: we and, at like age six or something.
1: At, like, age six. Yeah. So I was like, I'm done with this. It's too cold. You know? And then after, after another year, I, I started to miss it. Um, and so that's when I made a comeback at seven and started swimming. Um, I swam summer league and that was my first year in year round swimming too.
0: So were you an immediate gifted swimmer?
1: No. Um, I was okay. I mean, I think – I know I could – my dad always tells this story like, you just went straight as an arrow down the pool. Like, you weren't swerving or anything like that. But I wasn't – I didn't have the same, like, obsessive competitive um, focus in the beginning. Like, I was – still to this day. My favorite color is purple, and so I just wanted the purple and pink ribbons, which is, like, seventh and eighth. So I didn't really understand the concept of racing at that point. Um, And then something just clicked – I think as I was probably, I think it was like, probably like seven, eight, getting closer to nine, because that's when I really started doing really well in, in year round, um, where I just started realizing that the kids were, my friends were beating me, and they were getting these blue ribbons, and like, why didn't I have any blue ribbons? And it just like, then once it went off, it went off, and I just became like, the other direction, like walking up to kids behind the blocks and being like, what's your time? Oh yeah. My time is this, <laughs> like being that annoying, like jerk of a little kid. So it, it really swung the other direction.
0: Oh, that is so funny. You know, I've yeah. been wondering cause so I have one child, she's eight and my husband and I were both very competitive athletes and she has zero comp- like she would rather run at the very end Um, helping her friend who's walking finish the race than like push, right? Yeah, yeah. And so as parents, first of all, we're sort of paranoid trying not to make her feel like she has to perform to some crazy standard because we did. But at the same rate, like, is a competitive drive ever going to come out? So this gives me like just a little bit of comfort (laughs) that... (laughs) Maybe it never will. But if it does, whoa, we better be ready, huh? Yeah,
1: be ready because it can go, it can flip on a dime. And um, yeah, that's like when I was nine, it started like it went from like, not caring to like 10 years old being like, guys, I'm going to make the Olympic team. So.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, so, you know, in this eight and under 910 age group, you start focusing, right? Did you do other sports at that time?
1: So the only thing that I did that I had to, like, give up, um, I was big into tap, ballet, and jazz. Um, and so my claim to fame is, like, I got all three splits on the board so I could do, like, right side, left side, you know, front. Um, and I, I enjoyed that a lot. Like, I would do, you know, we'd do the plays, we'd do that, but then it just was taking up too much time. So at the age of, I think, nine, it was like, all right, are you going to do swimming? Or are you going to do ballet? And I liked the swimming because it was very much more definitive when you won. Um, Similarly, I played piano and I quit that, I think, around like maybe like 11 or 12 because I was like, well, like I did the piece well, but like who won? (laughs) My mom would be like, no, like you just like perform and you want to do a good job with your, you know, your sonatina or whatever you're doing. And I was like, why? Like I need to win. So I'm just going to go full on with swimming. (laughs)
0: Wow. Okay. So you had a singular focus from a very young age and did the results start coming?
1: Yeah. So I made, I don't know if people know this on here, but the zones is like kind of like a, it includes like six or seven States. And so that was kind of my first taste of, you know, you're getting a free suit and you're repping at the time, like Virginia. And it's almost like a mini Olympics, like in, in your world. Like you have to be top two in the state to make the team and you, you go away from your parents and you're on a bus. And it was just like, wow, like I'm getting free, you know, sweats and all this stuff. And, um, you know, broke my first state record at nine. And so nine, 10 was good. 11 was Rocky after that. I I think I almost quit at that point because I was still built like a nine year old at 11. And so I was getting my butt kicked after having been amazing at 10. It was very humbling to be 11 and have these 12-year-olds just kick my butt up and down the pool.
0: So when did you have that kind of puberty growth spurt then that maybe some of the 12-year-olds were already experiencing?
1: I would say it was pretty gradual. And even if, like, when I look at pictures of myself, like even making the team in 2004 and I just turned 15, I'm little, like, you know, I don't really have hips. Like I'm just like this little twig. Um, So I would say probably around 15, 16, 17, but I never really got, I mean, I don't really have big hips now. Um, So I never really had this. It was very gradual. um, And I was very like, I think I was very hyper aware of that too. Like I I know some of my teammates were breaststrokers because they could just like, you know, go across the water and then they were started becoming women, you know, and developing and it really messed with their strokes. And that terrified me. I remember being like psycho about needing to do pull-ups and not losing my upper body strength. And I was, you know, started really focusing on nutrition. Um, so that part kind of, I saw that happening around me and I was like, no, that is not happening to me. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's like,
0: so funny. Cause like, you know, you're so competitive that you want to control the things you can't control. Like sure. your body yep. changing? How funny! Yeah. Well, you know, I know. <laughs> I realize how that sounds. <laughs> no, but I mean, this is that, that's how it goes. You know, I was actually one of those breaststrokers really fast when I was sixteen. I didn't get my period till I was sixteen years old. Yeah, you know, it's like I was a little twig too. But then everything changed. I never got faster again. So I totally get it, and it definitely screws with your self esteem, mm-hmm. your body image, all this stuff, and your confidence because. You know, so I can understand the fear. So did that happen to you then? I mean, you did swim some breaststroke, you know?
1: I think, yeah, I swam some breaststroke. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't feel like there was ever a definitive moment. I think I just was very fortunate that it happened to me very gradually as I was growing up. Um, And the only time I felt like I really got more lower body was just from lifting. Um, But it didn't happen. I was just, I guess I was just lucky.
0: You know, it's funny because you totally have, you are in and out, a swimmer, right? Inside and out. Like, we're going to send you some skirt sports stuff. And for most people, it's like, yeah, my top is small and my bottom's a medium or large. And for you, it's my like, doctor. my top is a medium and my bottom's a small, yep. you know? And I just love it. I love it. So so with this singular focus where you didn't really have other extracurricular activities, even in like grade school and, and into high school, Right.
1: No, it was, um, and there's some, we can talk about that. There, there's some positive and negatives to that. You know, I think um, I, so I was in regular school in fourth grade, around nine. And then after that, just where the school system was, as my swimming schedule got a little bit more crazy, we just decided to homeschool. And I homeschooled all the way through high school. Um, so got to go to homecoming, still went to prom, just because I had such a great social group within my swim group. Um, but I was just laser focused of everything I thought breathe eight was swimming. Like it was all eggs in one basket, didn't care about anything else.
0: <laughs> wow. Okay. This is so cool. Let's, let's actually take a, a field trip and talk about homeschooling for a minute and come back to the, you know, pros and cons of the singular focus here. Uh, you do have a one sibling, is that right?
1: Yep. I have one brother who's about three and a half years younger than me.
0: Okay, so was he homeschooled as well?
1: He was homeschooled through, let's see, through the point where he was going to be in middle school, um, and then he actually went to regular school because he didn't have, like, he, he so he's an amazing musician, plays the piano, um, but he didn't have that same group that I did. So my mom felt like, okay, like, where's he going to find his social group? Um so he went to school all the way through high school and then obviously you know, went to college. Um, so it was us when we were younger. Both my mom handled both of us. And then as we got older, it was just my mom. And then the point where I hit, uh, I'd say, ninth or tenth grade, my mom and I's relationship was massively strained because she actually before I went to high school because she'd be give me grades and I would be like excuse me, like, I don't think that was a B, I think that was an A, like, who says you that that, you know, I would argue with her. And so (laughs) because of course, I get competitive with it. So yeah. And so at that point, you know, going into high school, we wanted to obviously make sure that I had the transcripts, I had all the grades, they were legit. So we enrolled in a essentially like an online school where, you know, the tests were proctored, I would send in my, you know, send in my papers and my tests, and they would grade them and keep track of them so that when I wanted to go to college, they were able to then officially send in the transcripts. Um, And that helped our relationship a lot because then it was just my mom, if I needed help, it wasn't her giving me the grades. And so she could be my mom again and not my teacher and my mom and driving me to practice and being, you know, all these things that she was doing for me.
0: This is actually really good timing because clearly we're sitting around in our homes those of us okay. who have kids taking on a new role as a homeschool parent. I'm lucky cuz my husband's doing that so I can sit and have these wonderful conversations with you. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, thinking about it from the flip side, like do you have any thoughts or advice for for parents who are thrust into this role so that the relationships don't get strained.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the nice part with right now is there is like a, you know, an end time. We don't know the exact end time, but it's not like it's, hey, you're ninth grade. Now you have four more years with this person. Um, I think for us, the times we were able to make it work was when we would get into this argument, we would separate. Like my mom was like, all right, we're taking a break. Like she would go to one side of the house, I would go to the other and I would either work on something that I could work on, which was more English. Like math was where we would have these explosions a lot because I would get frustrated that I didn't get it and it would just go back and forth. So I think the biggest advice is just if you're having an altercation or you, one of you is frustrated or both of you are frustrated, take a second, take a breather, reset, come back to it. Maybe even it's the next day um, cause I just think, you know, there's pretty much nothing you can do when both of you are frustrated and tired and annoyed and irritated, there's not going to be a lot of productive things that are going to happen after that stage. Um, and so being able to get back to, we call this this mood elevator. So being able to get back to curious, which is kind of like your baseline, um, and not in the depressed, annoyed, stressed area underneath it, um, is, is, uh, essential.
0: Okay, you have to talk about this. What is this, um, like mood, mood spectrum? Yeah, what do you call it's
1: it? Yeah, it's called the mood elevator. It's actually, um, I have to look at the technical term. It's actually, if you look it up, um, it has this full scale, and it's something that I actually learned after my swimming career. Um, where you have, you know, I'd have a, a manager taught it to me, and he was like, "All right, where are you on the scale right now today?" And I'd be like, oh, "Like, I'm curious." So curious meaning you're open, you have a growth mindset, you know, if someone says something maybe mean to you, you're thinking, okay, well, maybe they were coming from this place, maybe they weren't coming from this mean spirited outlook. Um, And then from there, it's, you know, optimistic, happy, um, you know, all these different positive things at the top, it's like ecstatic, or it's, you know, um, and then underneath the curious is where it just declines to the point where you're, you know, rock bottom of depressed. Um, So it's a really great place to kind of ask yourself, especially during this time, like where am I at on the mood mood elevator scale and how is that contributing to my interactions with my loved ones, with my kids, Um, depending on what we're doing. So,
0: Is this something you wish you had uh, in your arsenal when you were swimming?
1: Yeah, I actually think it would have been really helpful because it keeps you in check. Um, either having someone else check you with it. Like I've been checked a lot of times, like, where are you at? You know, it's just, just that one thing, you are like, Oh, I'm not in a good place. Um, so I think, yeah, it would have been really helpful at times to even, I mean, my coach could check me. I'm sure that my coaches checked me in a similar way or, you know, my parents, but, um, it's really helped kind of my relationships now after swimming.
0: Wow, this is so cool. I'm just, we're flowing along your ride here. Okay, so let's go back to you are now getting, like, you are performing well as a swimmer. When you say, like, I'm going to be in the Olympics at 10, I mean, maybe there's even a shot, right? So, what does that mean for a little kid who's in your early developmental years? And, you know, are you feeling the pressure or are you just having fun?
1: Yeah, I think unfortunately I was never the kid that was easy breezy um you know happy-go-lucky behind the blocks I think the first time I swam the 500 ed zones I threw up all over my coach's shoes like that's how stressed out I was um even at I think I was 11 at this point so and I would report to the blocks like an hour before like I was just just by nature I'm a very high strung person um I'm not, my husband's the laid back one. He's the one that keeps me in check. Um, and so I, I don't think by saying I wanted to make the Olympic team, that was the pressure. I just always put pressure on myself to perform, to get a best time, to get better, to win races. And I really think the thing that hit home for me was I made nationals, national championships, uh, which was in Fort Lauderdale that year in 2002, 2003. And it was the first time I watched a world record get broken live. Like I had never, I'd watched the Olympics in 2000 and, you know, been enamored with Caitlin Sandino, who was just 17 years old. Um, But I'd never seen one live. It was Natalie Coughlin's 100 meter backstroke, first female to go under one minute. And I know exactly where I was standing. I still get chills thinking about it. And it was in that moment, I think that I was like, I was so impressed. I was so in awe because At that meet, I didn't have a good meet because I was walking around looking at everyone who was there, going, How am I at this meet with Jenny Thompson, who I have a poster on her my wall right now of. And but I had this twinge of jealousy at the same time, like, oh, like I wanna do that. Like I wanna be breaking a record. And it was at that moment where I felt like, okay, I wanna be an Olympian, but I wanna do more than that. Like I wanna break a world record, I want to win medals, and I Still at that point at 12, had no idea kind of even what into, what went into that, the hard work, the sacrifice, the failures that come with that. Um, but I distinctly remember that moment kind of being like a pivotal, I didn't have a good meet and it just angered me. And instead of feeling defeat and just feeling like I wanted to give up, it just kind of fueled me to train really, really hard um, heading into that next year.
0: So you're in like sixth or seventh grade having this like at 12 or 13, oh my gosh, having this transformative experience. And then I'm sure at the time you may not have realized it, but you're like, I'm going to be fueled now on anger, right? And aggression, like boom. Um, have, you know, has that evolved? Did that start to evolve? And I, I think about it and I'm like, I get it. I totally get where you're at. And also you're young. So like your emotional tool shed of how to deal with things is still being developed. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think, oh my gosh, being fueled on anger that can only sustain you so long. Like, Were you, did that evolve over the years throughout your career? Like, what kept you fueled and motivated to have a decade long or, you know, long, long swimming career?
1: Yeah, I think that it wasn't as much anger all the time. Like, in that point, I was emotional and angry, but a lot of the times it was you know, embracing, and this is something we can talk about later, but embracing kind of the suck, right? Embracing the um, failure, embracing the pain, embracing the monotonous process that is 5am workouts, all of those things that came along with what I started to realize was, okay, this is a part of if I want to accomplish this goal of breaking a world record and making an Olympic team, this is what comes with that. And in my mind, it was worth, Everything. Like, I didn't care if I had to go through that um, because I knew that it was just kind of inherently just knew in my heart and my soul that it was going to be worth it once I accomplished that goal. And I just always had this belief, um, no matter how many times I got knocked down, that I was going to be able to do that.
0: So, embracing the suck. I love this concept. I think this is this is big for you. This is going to be a big part of your forward speaking career, isn't it? Yes, yes it is. Um, you know, the the question is like everyone has their different versions of suck. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So in order to embrace it, you have to have some kind of faith that it will all come out okay, right? Can you just talk a little more about maybe even like you mentioned Here are the things it took, like failures, pain, 5 a.m. workouts, jumping into a cold pool. Like, yeah, definitely (laughs) not my favorite thing either. (laughs) You know, um, there's sort of this like, what does it take? How do you learn to embrace it? And what is it that's going to give you the confidence that there's something good coming out the other side? Maybe hit, on. let's hit on all three of those. Let's start with, what does it take? What does it take to be the best in the world?
1: It's a very hard question because I think when you're in the middle of it, you almost don't think about it. And it's almost taken me stepping back and looking kind of on my career and being, God, like, what did I do? You know, because when you're in it, you're just like, next, 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 whatever I got to do, whatever I got to do. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. So it's obviously, I think consistency is huge. I mean, I, I'm such a strong believer in consistency in anything in life, like with relationships, with anything you're working towards, whether it's in your job, being a good mom, you know, any of those things, um, consistency is everything. Uh, and I noticed a lot of people around me where, you know, maybe they have an awesome week of workouts and then mm, this week I'm tired. And so I'm going to give it 97%. Well, doesn't get you to where you need to be. It's 100% or nothing, in in my opinion. And I think that that level of consistency and intensity every single day is extremely difficult to keep that focus. Um, And then I think being able to be okay, like you talked about having the faith that, like, how do you know it's going to happen? Well, it may not you know, that that's, I think the scariest and the hardest one to embrace of, Hey, I could go four years and this has happened to me. I could go four years and put in the consistency and put in the focus and put in the intensity and be almost flawless in my process. Cause that's another thing you need to embrace. And I still may not accomplish what I want to accomplish. I still not may I may not win a gold medal. I may not break a world record, Like that saying that is terrifying. And how do you still go in each and every day without that guarantee? And I think it again comes down to your passion and your obsession. And I say obsession in a positive way. Like you have to be positively obsessed with your goal. And that's a lot of things I talk about with people is if you have a, you know, a why or a goal or however you want to talk about it and it's not this burning all you think about all you you know get up in the morning for type of goal then you might need to reevaluate what your goal is or maybe the or define the goal as it's a process so maybe you're in a job that you you're not it's not you know burning amazing but it's something that's going to lead you to a you know passionate amazing job then okay then you can be that's just part of your process but you've got to really define what those things are in order to do all of the embracing of all of the different things.
0: Otherwise, yes. it just doesn't
1: happen. <laughs> it's too hard without that.
0: Well, and even with all the right tools and the right mindset and everything, there are things out of our control too, yeah. which I want to get to later. Because I think swimming is just, oh, it's just this brutal sort of, Occasionally self-defeating sport because you can't control anyone else's results. Absolutely. I yeah. know um, <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I was thinking um, back to Here you are then You've got or let me let me back up You did this fabulous TEDx talk Right. Oh, thank you. Absolutely amazing. I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes to it and here you're talking about your goal. In the talk, you you say the word, your need, my need. Yes. I had a need, needs, wants, goals. And that really resonated with me, you know, and, and throughout your career, that need was met or not met at different times, which we're, we're getting to. Can you share a little more about like helping people learn how to identify their need? Because a lot of people want to have that they just aren't super clear on what it is so how do you help people gain clarity around that so that they can do the embracing of the suck
1: yeah yeah it's like because just like you said it's great if you have that already and you know I was just lucky enough to have it um but the best way I can talk about it is like when I stopped swimming I retired from swimming I was back to square one like a lot of people like I was like okay well how am I going to top being swimming at the you know being the best in the world and winning all these medals? Now I just don't have that anymore, um, and I think it's understanding. Like for me, it was a pivot of okay, it, it, swimming wasn't necessarily like I love the sport of swimming. It's what swimming made me feel. So when I swam and I was the best, I felt extraordinary. I felt like I was doing something exceptional, and so that allowed me to then say okay what can I do to make myself feel exceptional now? And I'm getting there. I still haven't found it. Um, But it's, I think, sitting down and and realizing, again, embracing that it might be a process. You know, I've been removed from the sport for now almost five years. And it's taken me five years of you know, going off the grid and swimming and going into the corporate world and doing a couple different jobs that made me not happy. And, and, you know, were up and down, but I learned things from, and now I'm kind of coming around to finding my calling of being able to speak about, um, you know, my, my troubles, speak about my ups, my downs, my, my wins, and hopefully impact people in a really positive way. And that's starting to make me feel extraordinary again. But you have to be willing to embrace the process of finding that need, finding that need. And sometimes finding that need might take years. And I think a lot of times people give up too early and they just maybe settle of like, okay, well, this is good. This is good enough. Um, But it takes being vulnerable. It takes shedding some tears. It takes being willing to go there and put yourself out there um, to find that need and not settling.
0: You know, and something that you mentioned here is how it made you feel, how things make you feel, which means you're very in tune with, you know, the, the event or action and how it resonates with you as a person. And it kind of reminds me of a term that we use in swimming, which is your feel for the water right i never really understood that until i understood it what's really yeah. funny is i don't know if i ever really understood it when i was a really fast swimmer it's like afterwards that i understood it but what it really also relates to is this idea of like really knowing yourself and being in tune with yourself and listening to your body and that's what helps you develop that feel you know so i th- i don't know i feel like a lot of times we discount the our own voice inside our head, our own feelings within our heart. And we we don't give them a lot of credibility, but it sounds like that's something you've really learned to do.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. I think, and I think there's so many outside factors to that, right? You know, if you, you know, there's the financial, you have kids, you have other people that you're needing to serve and needing to make, put their feelings above your own. And I was obviously fortunate enough. I don't have kids yet. You know, i Found a husband who's understands me and has you know fought for me to find that need again, um, but I do think you're a hundred percent right when you have to listen to yourself. Like you're gonna eventually find that, like. I'm such a big believer in gut instincts and a a woman's intuition. Like, I think that leads you in the right direction. Um, I had a coach, uh, Jack Roach, who he's just, if you, if you know him, he's like the wise old owl of USA swimming. And he was like, never ever argue with a woman's intuition. Like it's always right. And I think a lot of times we ignore that because of one reason or another. And I ignored it for a really long time. I just felt like, I wasn't ready to kind of embrace my identity away from the sport or I wasn't, you know, confident to be back into the sport um, because of everything that happened in my career. And after five years, I'm kind of finally finding my footing again and being, you know, ready to kind of find my true identity.
0: You know, I feel like there is a line between having your need, identifying your need, your goals. And identifying your purpose, and yeah. like we spend a lot of time in our young lives and our young adult lives, not necessarily understanding our purpose yet. And you are at this prime point in life where it feels like the purpose is right there. It's like it's it's showing itself to you right right now as we speak.
1: Yeah, it's a very uh, liberating. Sounds like so weird to say, but it's like a liberating experience being able to feel like, okay, you know, now being able to give back and, you know, speak with young athletes and doing some mentoring that I do uh, with Rise, um, a company I work with and and working with, um, you know, people that are just trying to find their widened need and being able to be very open and vulnerable about kind of what I've gone through. That's kind of one of the reasons why I shied away as I felt very unauthentic to stand in front of a group of people and be like swimming, rah, rah. Like I had the best time here and the best time there. And there were a lot of great times, but I think the times that people can learn the most from of realizing Olympians go through it and Olympians have you know, rock bottoms and they, you know, bounce back this way. And I didn't feel comfortable saying that, honestly, up until the TED Talk. The TED Talk was the first time that I really opened up and said some stuff that I had no, never said in an interview or really in front of anyone other than my family or my husband. So um, it's hard. It's scary to be vulnerable. And that's something I'm, I'm kind of now comfortable being vulnerable, I guess you could say. so.
0: Do you think you would have been as successful a swimmer if you if you were comfortable being vulnerable then?
1: Such a good question. I don't know. I think yeah, you're right. There is some level of you want to especially in a lot of situations I felt like at a very young age I went through some scrutiny or some, um, maybe negative, you know, you didn't accomplish this or that. And I had to kind of find my armor a little bit with kind of not paying attention to that or not opening up about how I was feeling and just kind of trudging on. It was just like, all right, next thing. All right, keep going because it didn't really feel like there was another option. It was just like, keep, keep on keeping on.
0: (laughs) Well, and I do think too, I mean, it's, we can also embrace the fact that to be the best in the world sometimes there are some things that maybe we won't embrace later in lives about ourselves, but we need in order to become the best, you know, like that self-centered approach and the sacrifice you mentioned, and that can sacrifice relationships, all kinds of stuff, like, you know, falls by the wayside when you're chasing a goal that big. It's huge.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You kind of have to have this tunnel vision, um, And it's, you know, when you look back, you definitely see, you know, I feel like I'm able to appreciate and see like for what my parents did for me. Oh my gosh, you know, way more now than I ever did when I was swimming. You know, I was appreciative and I knew that my parents sacrificed a lot, um, but not to the degree, to the degree now where I'm like, oh my gosh, you did what you drove where, you know, it just was, was such a I loved, you know, when I turned. That was one of the reasons I turned professional. Being able to give back to them um, and take any of the stresses of financial, you know, bearing off of them um, was was really uh, rewarding to be able to do that.
0: It's incredible. Okay, so let's go back to Katie, the swimmer, because you know we're talking identities here. You know, we we kind of fast-forwarded and we're getting a sense for like. The Katie of now, but Katie the swimmer. So let's talk about some of your big breakthroughs and your first Olympics and take us through some of these experiences, good and bad.
1: So, yeah, 2004 was my first Olympic team. Uh, Going into that trials, I think, well, actually, I think the most pivotal meet for me was probably two months out. We had a Grand Prix, just, you know, everyone comes together, gets ready. And I was kind of in the pack in the 400 IM. Um, I don't know if you people know what 400 IM is on here, if everyone does, but it's essentially like the decathlon of swimming, 100 of each stroke, very painful, very strategic. I don't know if there's anyone in the ready room that's like, yes, like I'm ready to swim the 400 IM because it's just so, so painful. But unlike any other event, I felt like the the feeling that you got of, when you touch the wall and you broke a record or you got a best time, unlike any other event for me personally. And so that's why you do it. Um, And so I dropped three seconds at that meet. And suddenly I was ranked top in the nation. I was 14 years old. And suddenly it went from, hey, maybe if I could make a couple Olympic trials finals, you know, a year out from 2004, suddenly it was like, I, I can make the team here. Like, oh my God. And the thing I've been saying for five years that I, kind of believed but like now it's actually becoming you know a possible reality was very surreal uh and then I went into the meet and was pretty terrified I'll never forget sitting there um Maggie Bowen who was an idol of mine forever was sitting next to me and I was about to race her and I felt great in the first hundred and I went out probably about two seconds faster than I normally did on the first hundred, which in swimming terms is like a lot. Like I was just like riding the wave. Like I felt so good at the halfway mark. I was like, I am in trouble. Like I was tightening up, ended up gaining a full 10 seconds from my best time um, that I'd gone two months prior. And at that point moment thought I blew it. Like I was like, it's over. That was fast. I just blew my Olympic dreams um dragged myself out and luckily uh slipped in sixth place for the finals and my, i think my lactic acid for those of you who know what it is i think normal lactic acid without i think it was like in the what twos or threes it was like 17 like reading. like it, i was like <laughs> i could barely walk um and to this day so i went into the finals in lane 7 to this day so my email my instagram everything has 7 because that's my first olympic team came back at night and just flipped my mindset. It just was kind of like, well, the pressure's off. I'm in lane seven, so I kind of screwed up this morning. So the only way to go is up. Uh, I remember diving in in the warm ups and just felt just like a different swimmer, um, and ended up going in and winning um, the final. It was like a few hundreds off of Summer Sanders' American record, and made the Olympic team. at, You know, I just turned fifteen the month before. Um, and that was, that was a moment I cherish forever. I had video of it um, and being able to kind of just on the first day make the Olympic team, get it over with. Made, I won the 200 IM as well, um, made the team in that, and it was just a very surreal Olympic trials.
0: Would you consider that meet your biggest breakthrough of your career?
1: Yes, yes. I would say so. I think just because it was like, everyone has that moment where you're, you go from not Olympian to Olympian and it's just like this, it, you, you dream of it, you work for it, but you never, I don't know. I think on some level, you're never positive it's going to happen until it does. And that was, I mean, that was a very surreal. And then it, it's kind of like this moment where you, especially when your first time you dream so much about making the team and then suddenly you're like, Oh, now I have to, go and swim in the Olympics, oh no, like that is the moment where you're like, oh geez.
0: The next level. Um, yeah. You yeah. know what makes you so special is that swimming is a mental sport as much as it is physical. And when you start off a meet on what you might consider a failure like you did, yeah. I mean, you sucked in your prelim, <laughs> right? Yeah. For yeah. you. And um most people can't flip the switch. So, well, first of all, you did something to shake out all that lactic acid. That is ridiculous. That is Like, hilarious.
1: like oh, no yeah. one was left at the pool that day. Like I was just, I just kept having to swim, kept going back, kept getting my ear prick to check it. Um, and I just remember being like, it's not clear yet. Oh my God. Keep swimming, keep swimming, keep swimming. Um I could get it up there pretty high for I've I've done probably, you know, 15, 16, 17 reading a couple times. Um, never embrace the suck for real. And that was, that was Totally.
0: But you uh, know, most um, most people can't then flip it. Like you start off a meat that way, that's your meat for a lot of people. And you flipped it that day.
1: Yeah, that was um, and it's one of those things. I think it almost took the it almost did the opposite for me. It almost took the pressure off. It was like, okay well, I can only go up from here. And I knew it wasn't that I, on some level, I knew it wasn't that I had, didn't have it in me. I just knew that I was an idiot and got too hyped up and took my race out too fast and didn't swim it strategically well. So I was like, okay, if I can just swim relaxed. Um, But I will say if we fast forward to six weeks later, that's a really, that prelim affected my mental abilities and doubt heading into the uh the prelims of at the Athens Olympic Games because suddenly A, I'd never been on a national team or been out of the country or been away from my parents. So I had that kind of feature where that was was really hard. And then I'm sitting in the ready room thinking, well I can't do what I did. These Olympic Games, this isn't the Olympic trials, like I can't do what I just did six weeks prior. Like I have to have a good swim. I have to, you know it was all these have to's, need to's, um And I'm a very kind of routine oriented person. And anytime I've done something for the first time, like my first nationals didn't go well, my first, um, you know, any type of big Grand Prix, like anytime I, I do it for the first time, it's kind of like I need the experience to feel confident. And so it was really hard the first time to think all these things about Olympic trials. And I think I didn't, I didn't, inhale or exhale like barely at all for 10 minutes in the ready room in the prelims um and that's when I had just very similar experience I didn't take it out too fast but just just froze up um and equally painful and ended up throwing up on the deck um from the lactic acid when I finished the race um so not the best Olympic debut
0: (laughs) so this was you're 15 years old you're participating in your first olympics and it didn't go as planned
1: no the opposite like that that would be if someone was like hey you're going to go to the olympics you just turned 15 you know thousands of people are going to be watching you are representing your country and you're gonna get you know sixth in the heat seventh in the heat not make it back to finals and also throw up all over the deck and like tons of cameras are going to capture that moment i would be like stop it that's a nightmare you're kidding that is exactly what happened. So, um <laughs> I can laugh about it now cuz it's what 16 years ago um and for a while like that was the first picture that came up if you googled my name of me literally on the deck throwing up and that was that was not fun. Um but I did I even was able to, you know, if I look back on I was able to rebound. Um I got myself together, multiple people kind of talked to me and mentors on the team and um got to the point where I was from the 200 IM and I was at least able to make the final. Um, And I got seventh, but I still got to swim in an Olympic final, you know, and kind of did a mini pivot, at least got myself to that point. So,
0: so did you leave that Olympics fueled on anger or fueled on retribution or like what kept you going after that experience? Did you immediately say, okay, four years from now, that's my next goal?
1: No, that that one hit me really hard. I think you know, and thank goodness the, the, you know, there's not Instagram and the way Facebook, like I didn't get hit nearly as much as I'm sure people do now, but it was really hard to go online. I, like, I'm a masochist cause I went online and wanted to see, but to, to see people, you know, failure, disaster. I mean, those words were getting thrown around and at 15 years old, that was really hard to take. Like I felt like I had let down everybody. Um, and even, you know, I remember we got back and they all had a party for me. And I felt like, which is crazy So I was like, I don't deserve this. Like, I didn't meddle. I I was almost ashamed. It was like, no one come, no one get me anything. Um, and took like a week. Um, watched the, because I was so young, I didn't stay for the after stuff or the closing ceremonies. Took a week and kind of was like, okay, like I still have that goal. It's still inside of me. There wasn't like a choice again. Like it's like, that's why I keep saying like that need will just like pull you up. Like I didn't even, wasn't even like I tried to do it. It just happened. And it was just like, all right, what are we doing now? And what is the process to kind of get to the next point? The next uh, year was world championships. Let's think about that. Um, and that's when my coach and I kind of sat down and I was like, All right, you, we need to get over this fear of the 400 I am. Like, you are fearful of this thing and we need to nip that in the bud. And we did this terrible hell set that I'll never forget that he told me that he was like, You're not going to know when it is. Um, it's just going to happen and you're going to have to be ready for it then. And it's going to be painful. And, but it's going to make you never fear the 400 am again. And he waited like, I don't know, like eight weeks, like every day coming in. I was like today, is it today? Oh my God, it's today. And I had to like wait until it happened. And then I did it and it was like two and a half hours long. I did it by myself, ended in like an 800 IM for time. And like, it was awful, but I did it. And that kind of like, after that I was momentum and I was crushing it and, and doing great after that. So,
0: wow, your coach is amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah, he, he knew me very, very well. Like he knew it kind of what made me tick, um, you know, he wasn't a yeller, um, just just kind of understood the athlete that I was uh, mentally and physically.
0: okay, so what was the next path? Was there a breakthrough before the next Olympics?
1: So definitely a couple. I, you know, two thousand five, I broke my first American record in the two hundred IM. Um, you know, won three golds at that world championship. Pampax was great the next year, which was two thousand six, and then two thousand seven is kind of always the one I talk about because that's when I I view as I conquered the four hundred IM. I went to world championships in two thousand seven. And broke the world record in the 400 am It's my first world record, and it was in the 400 am which was like this race that had just been like this thorn in my side for so many years. And you know, it took three years from 2004 to 2007 before I kept kind of chipping away at it. Um, but I felt so much more strong, relaxed, um, and confident to do what I did. So that was like probably that's probably one of my favorite moments in my career.
0: It's amazing. I remember it too. Really, <laughs> So cool. I mean, you had just this massive lead, like three body lengths or something, right?
1: That was crazy too. Yeah. And you know what kind of really fueled me through that race is there were a couple of people, one was sick and my biggest competitor, Kirstie Coventry got decued in the prelims. And I remember thinking, like, I was upset about it because I was like, right, if I'm going to win this world championship gold medal, like I want there to be no I don't know, doubts that I wanted, even if she was in it. And so I was like, well, I guess the only... And I wasn't thinking world record, but I was like, I need to have a very strong, strong swim here to prove that. And so it almost fueled me, and it almost took away the nervousness. It was like, well, she's not going to be here. Obviously, you know, I had a lot of great competitors, but she was like the one at the time. And even going into the race, I was bummed that I had not broken a world record at that meet, but I wasn't thinking about it. It was kind of this moment where I was very relaxed. It was the last 4 a.m. Don't ask me why they make the 4 a.m. the last day eight of the meet. It's so grueling that it's the last day, but it's the last day. It's pretty much the last event. Um, And I was just like, all right, let's go. Like nothing to lose here. So it
0: was cool. Oh my gosh. So amazing. So at that time, were you already getting endorsements and, you know, were you able to take endorsements?
1: So if you turn professional and for what over for win for goog um your college eligibility uh I did that after the two thousand five world championship so I just turned sixteen uh went professional um and signed a like a ten year deal with speedo.
0: Oh cool are you still working with them?
1: I'm not working with them anymore um the, so that was from two thousand five to two thousand fifteen um but yeah, that was kind of my and you know they they paid for all of my college tuition, so that was a big deal for me. Um and it you know a lot of people have asked that of like how was it to go pro? Did it add the pressure? For me personally, I felt excitement from it. It just I felt like it gave me freedom. Um I felt like it gave me the flexibility to help out my family with kind of the strain of, you know, them flying all over the world to come see me. And it was just fun, you know, and I I definitely, I know that swimming in college is is really fun and I'm sure I did miss out on some of the team aspect of that. Um, But I still feel really good about the experiences that I got to go through working with different companies, um, you know, doing different things, flying all over the world. Um, Those are things that, you know, I'll never forget.
0: You know, and I do believe that there's an element of confidence that comes when you have that kind of support from a company or individuals. But the financial support definitely, you know, it it makes a difference.
1: It does. And I think, you know, my family, like we sacrifice, you know, I think, you know, it's not like we I don't, we didn't have like a ton of money lying around, you know, my parents worked really, really hard to, you know, make sure that we could pay for hotels and flights. And, you know, at the beginning of my career, like swimming is not a cheap sport, you know? And so I felt um, really good about being able to Financially support myself, um, and you know, get college paid for, and do all those things, and set myself up for, with my future, um, with my you know, my future life post swimming. So there, were, it was a hard decision, um, but it was one that I felt like I had a lot of people in my corner, um, you know, my agent, my parents, my coach, really helping me along to make it such a big decision at you know, 16 years old.
0: That's true, and you know, a long time ago. People believed that you could have a short swimming career, like you might be good for four or five or six years, and then your body might change. But then people like Derek Torres showed us that, yeah. you know, you can be at the top of the game for like thirty years, you know, a really long time. Um, your game was cut a little bit short, yeah, um, due to factors outside of your control. So, you know, here we've kind of taken people through some of the early years of of you reaching the top pinnacle of the sport. After that, I mean, there were more Olympic Games and more world championships. And I would probably say you were riding the top wave of the sport for a good decade. Would you agree?
1: Um, decade? I think it would have been a decade. Um, you know, I definitely hit a dip after Beijing, Um, and that was really challenging, you know, went through a coaching change, um, had a really rough year in 2009. And so I was kind of just like clawing my way back up, um, heading into 2012, 2012 didn't go well. I ended up, you know, with a really weird, like stomach illness that kind of threw me off. Um, and then I thought I was going to be, I wasn't sure at that point, my, my, my need and my passion for the sport were not. Where they needed to be and so getting back up each time my confidence my self-esteem my identity um, were all very shaken Um, and the unfortunate part is i feel like i was able to kind of very authentically and organically come back to that prior to rio Um, i had met my husband at this point he had given me some great confidence i felt like i was loving the process loving the sport um hitting great paces in workout just like really back to my game and this is when life throws you curveballs ended up with a pulmonary embolism in my lungs which I've never had any injury that's like put me out more than maybe a few days like a pull. and of course like a pulmonary embolism which I didn't even know what it was when the doctor told me um just you know affected my lungs to the point where there was just damage that you know 97 percent lung capacity is not going to help you make an Olympic team. So.
0: Oh my gosh. So you are not only healthy, like you're beyond healthy as an individual. Yeah. You know, you're, you're like a specimen, right? (laughs) And then you get hit with, with this pulmonary embolism, which most people don't even really know what it is. Why, why do you get them? Why, why would anyone get one?
1: It's, I learned a lot about blood clots in that time. Um, I think it's something, you know, there's a lot of different factors. So obviously the the kind of the easy questions are, have you traveled a super long time? Did you have some type of injury or trauma? Are you older? Are you deconditioned? Um, Are you on birth control? Those are kind of all like the normal questions. And for me, the reason that I went so long undiagnosed was that I didn't really fit in those boxes. Um, Yeah, I had traveled like four hours from Miami to California, but that's not, when they say long flights, they mean like 12, 13 hours. Um, you know, I didn't have an injury. Um, the only thing that they can even come up with to this day, they still don't, I don't have a condition in my family, was just that I was swimming in the Miami heat a lot. To this point, I'm swimming um, at Miami, and I have a super low, like 38 resting heart rate. And so, you know, if you're dehydrated a lot, you have a super low resting heart rate. It can be kind of like the perfect storm to create this. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, I went literally six weeks undiagnosed. Like, I flew on a plane. I thought I had an intercostal strain. They thought I had pneumonia, all this stuff. And finally, I was like – I was questioning myself. I'm like, did I just suddenly become, like, this super weak-minded person? Like, why can I not breathe and work out? Why do I have – I mean, when I first had it, it, like, it made me pass out because I couldn't even get air in because the pain was so intense. Um, And so finally, I was like – I. I'm not crazy. I didn't suddenly become weak. Can I please have a blood test? And they tested my blood. My D-dimer was elevated. um, And they ordered a CAT scan. The doctor came back out and was like, yeah, you have two blood clots in the bottom of your lung, your right lung. And I, at that point I breathed a sigh of relief. Like I was like, okay, I'm not crazy. Like the pain was legitimate. Um, And they admitted me to the hospital and put me on blood thinners.
0: And so at that time, were you like, oh, okay, this is fixable. So I'll just heal this and I'll go back to swimming.
1: Yes. At that point I was like, okay, good. Like the the blood thinners are going to be great and that's all good. And I, at that point I was still thinking, okay, Rio is going to happen. Like this is going to be good. Um, and there were a lot of complications that I wasn't prepared for, uh, that the doctor probably didn't want to tell me at the time, but you know, the, the length of time that the scar tissue had built up in my lungs, because they were in there for six weeks, um, definitely, I mean, it took me even probably like a year and a half after I retired where I didn't feel this twinge of scar tissue. Like at, this, at this point, I feel fine, um, but it was definitely there. And then I even had another surgery, like my thymus gland was doubled in size. I don't know if it was because of the blood clot, but I had to have surgery for that, so all of this, I was trying to swim through all of this and I finally looked at my coach and I was like, the whole point of me making this comeback is to enjoy this process and enjoy the sport again. And I'm sitting here like gasping for air in the gutter, having a terrible, miserable time. And that's not how I want to go out. So I want to go out where, okay, like it wasn't in my own terms, but at least I can remember like really having a great time training, having an awesome partnership with my coach at the time. And, um, you know close close the chapter on this part of my life and and move forward so
0: well and it's really hard because anytime you close a chapter you'd love for there to be a finish line like one last race and of course yeah. you know you you hope it's the best race you ever had but like yeah. one last this one last that and you you kind of had to just make a decision and stop right yeah it
1: was it was the hardest decision i remember walking to my coach's office to tell him And I knew it was the right decision because I walked out of there and I felt just relief. And I remember feeling so freed by that because I just pained over it for probably six months of, you know, will I regret this? Is this the right thing to do? Should I keep pushing forward? And that's how I've made a lot of decisions in my life of, okay, 10 years from now, am I going to look back on this and am I going to regret that I didn't do this or that? And I remember thinking, no, I'm going to regret if I go to trials and just, Kind of do average and don't enjoy it. And that's just not how I want to finish things. And so I kind of, you know, obviously went through a period of very difficult transition of, okay, now who am I? But it was the right thing to do at the time.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, and you just hit on this. Who am I now? All you've been is Katie the swimmer. Yeah. And I don't know if you had this, but I know I experienced it, and so did my husband. Like, even when you're at the prime of your athletic you know life people would still be like so what are you going to do next it's like you don't ask a cpa what are you going to do next after this career is over but i mean i think people know like you can't be an athlete at that level your entire life so they're asking you throughout your entire career and that question is is not fair because you can't be thinking about what you're going to do next when you're when you're trying to give it your all for what you're in So I don't know if during the six month period of just this soul searching and heartbreak you were going through, did you start to explore that? Or did you just sort of focus on this, make the decision? And once you felt that relief and you said it out loud, you were like, okay, now I got to figure it out.
1: Yeah, I think it was probably a combination of the two. I, I had all these parting lines that people, because people throughout my career, like, what are you going to do? Or why are you going to school? You know, all these different things. And like one, it was like, oh, I'm going to be like in fashion and PR. No. Um, and then the next thing was like, I'm going to be a dietitian. So I like had these like uh, ideas of what I was going to do, but it never really lined up. Um, and I didn't know, I think I did when I retired, I thought I was going to be, I was like, well, like I like eating healthy. So maybe I want to be a dietitian. And I my husband said, he's like, I just had to like, let you like live that out. You, I, no one was going to tell you. He's like, I knew that wasn't like what, like dietitians like is great, but he's like, it just didn't fit your personality. Like you have to get through chemistry. And you have like, it's just not the way, like remember how I followed my mom for algebra too. Like it just does not work personality. So um, that's kind of when I, I, found this, I kind of fell into fitness. Um, and at that point I didn't, you know, a lot of athletes will start doing clinics and they're give speeches. And, um, I wanted nothing to do with it. Like I just, there was such pain there that I kind of fell off the grid. And I just was like, you know what, I'm going to define myself. Like, I don't want people to know I swim. I mean, they're going to find out, but like, I don't want them to know. I want to, I want to be respected, like in the business world as like, this corporate person and take charge person like that. And that was kind of my, my idea of what I wanted to do for four years. Um, and so I just kind of fell into sales uh, with Equinox uh, with a fitness company and just started that life and just kind of didn't look back at all for um, a really long time.
0: Okay. So, Okay. One thing that's standing out here that you've touched on a little bit. Do you have a few more minutes here? Yeah. yeah, Okay, great. So you've got this husband who's like super cool. And, uh, once they check out your Instagram, they'll be like, wow, that guy's pretty awesome too. And and check out that YouTube video when he uh, proposed to you.
1: Yes. Publicly. I'm so thankful that that was able to get, I mean, how many people have this professional video of their husband proposing, um, so that was a very special day.
0: Oh my gosh, that was so cool. So he works uh, with Equinox, is that right?
1: Yeah, he actually still works with Equinox. Um, so when I retired, we were living in Miami, and he was already working with Equinox. And then um, we wanted to be closer to family, more Midwest. West, we moved to Chicago. Um, and that's where he continued. He's kind of gone up through the ranks um, at Equinox for now seven years. So,
0: so where are you living now?
1: So we actually recently moved from Chicago um, to Weehawken, New Jersey, which is just outside of New York. Like it's literally, I can see the city from our building um, and we, he, got, he got a promotion and I got a promotion within Equinox and so moved us out here and it was very different in New York. Um, I think New York is is, is a crazy city. Um, so we're, we're doing well here now um, and he's doing well, but I actually had decided to Um, at that point, after about almost a year, um, kind of find, like I said, find that um, kind of impact and that need again um, with, you know, writing a book and um, doing some speaking and working with kids. And um, it's been pretty cool so far.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because your partner in life, Todd, is also in fitness, but he was not a swimmer, right?
1: No, he was not a swimmer, which is crazy because, I think he's, except for maybe like one other per, like he's the only person I dated that wasn't a swimmer in my, cause obviously, you know, like we're all together all the time. Uh, and so it was neat because he kind of had an outside perspective enough from swimming, but he had enough perspective of being, you know, an elite athlete himself in football. And so it was very, when we met, we were both kind of in this weird transition. Like I was after 2012 was kind of in a very low point, uh, didn't know if I was going to go back or not, and then he had just been cut from the NFL, and so he was in that stage. And so we were both, I think, very – like, we moved in together after dating for, like, a couple months. So we were both in this, like, why not? Let's do it type of attitude. Um, Obviously, really worked out, but having a partner in crime to understand how you're feeling and acknowledge how you're feeling made a really big difference.
0: Um, he's super cool. And I can see how you guys are good supports for each other. Um, and he's really strong and I highly recommend people watch your koala moves. Cause that was one of my greatest forms of entertainment the other day. So
1: hard. It's crazy during this quarantine. I mean, I think we, because there's, it's a, all right, let me just say, it's really annoying because there's like these little, the girl that I saw, there's like these little, like Five, two, five, four girls that are just like zip, zip, zip around the guy. And here I am, like long legs, 5'11, trying to get around him. It took me like 15 tries. Like he did the outtake video of us trying. <laughs> that is what? so
0: awesome. And you know what? We're not even going to explain it. You're going to just have to get on and look at what a koala is. All right, everybody. Koala <laughs> so,
1: challenge. <laughs> yes.
0: Oh my gosh. I can tell you that that's not going to happen in my household. Even no, with a strong husband, body
1: strength, you could do it,
0: yeah, it's true. I've got it Ugh. um so what's your need now?
1: My need now is being defined. My need that I realized after swimming was again, like it's not it wasn't the swimming, it's how the swimming made me feel extraordinary, and I think the i struggle struggle a lot in the corporate world because. It was hard to feel extraordinary a lot because, you know, Equinox gave me so much and I learned actually so much about sales and business and, you know, how to be aggressive in a different way than in sport. But I feel, I almost felt like I was kind of cheating myself of just throwing away 20 years of experiences um, and wisdom and knowledge and not sharing that. And I absolutely love public speaking. Um, and actually, it's to me, it, it doesn't, yes, I get nervous, but it's like a good nervous. Like it, it's like that adrenaline hit of, you know, sharing something and sharing it well and getting off the stage. Um, I compare it very much to like a race, like a performance. And I think being able to work with kids and mentor, you know, young females and just being able to give back in that way has made me feel that again and made me feel fulfilled and excited and, um, you know, just really optimistic about the future. And um, this is all super recent that this happened. So um, I'm, you know, maybe it's different in six months from now, but I'm, I'm, that's how I'm feeling right now today.
0: You're gaining clarity, you're a work in progress. And no matter what happens, it's very difficult to not play the comparison game. You were the best in the world in one particular thing in your life. Yeah. Forever inside of you will be this need to be the best in the world, whatever that means, yeah. For another thing or or for everything you do. So it is a progress a work in progress. And and it's amazing to to be sitting here with you today when you're in a place of more peace and clarity.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, if you were talking, well, here's the thing. If you were talking to me like three years ago, I may have been saying certain things, but I may not have been, I probably would have got off and been like, that wasn't an honest answer. And that was, I think why I shied away Is I felt so guilty of, I wasn't ready to say how I was feeling or what was, you know, what was making me feel that way. But I also, you know, wasn't ready to be fully honest and vulnerable and say those things. So I'm just really, I'm literally the TED talk happened. Someone slid in my DMs and asked me to do it. And I almost like didn't really realize what it was. And then I said yes to it. And I was like, oh my gosh, the TED talk, like this is serious. And it, it, it opened the doors to so much to me, just feel empowered. And felt like people actually wanted to hear what I had to say. You know, I think the reaction that I got from the audience was, not what I was expecting at all, so it was a pretty cool moment.
0: well, you opened your heart and it's still open, which is yeah. so cool yeah. um i I know that today you're putting on these cool like dryland clinics, virtual dryland and, clinics. is that right?
1: yeah, so that's actually been a very new development, obviously, with all of us in this virtual world that we're in right now. Um, I just felt like you know I wanted to be able to give back, and you know I could give a speech, and that's great, but I felt like right now it's just all about controlling what you can control, and dry land and moving is something people can actually still do. And I've made it all body weight, um, like or just like you need a towel or like a plastic bag, just because some people have equipment, some people don't. And I've done two, so I've done one on core and one with legs. I'm still sore today from my legs. One yesterday, uh, but I've been doing doing them on Tuesdays and Saturdays. Um, people can click; it's free. And I just feel like it's a way to give back and, you know, if I was swimming right now and having this unknown thing going on of when's my next meet, when's the Olympics, well, I guess we know when the Olympics is now, but when's my next meet going to be, I would want to be doing something physically to feel like I'm getting stronger and taking control of my future.
0: Oh, it's so awesome. I'm going to go back and do the leg one. Can we do it after the fact?
1: Yes. So if you subscribe and you've signed up, you'll get an email. I can actually share it with you if you want. Um, You can, you'll keep getting the replays. So Saturday is going to be all about um, like super sprint Saturday because us swimmers, I mean, every Saturday, right. is like race pace. It's the last one of the week. You got to get it. And so I'm going to do kind of a version of like broken swims, but on land. Um, and I'm always going to have like a guest with me. So Caroline Burkle, um, is coming on and she's going to be my partner. She's one of my best friends. She's my wedding. And so we're going to do one with everybody this Saturday at 1130. So
0: awesome. Awesome. Okay. So (laughs) people can find that link on your Instagram. How else can they connect with you?
1: Yeah. So I would say the best way is, is my Instagram right now. Um, I'll have a website out very, very soon. um, It'll just be – so everything – it's so funny. People have always called me K, KT, like the letter K, the letter T. Um, so it's kthock.com, and then my Instagram is kthoff 7 um, and so I do a lot. I probably do the most on my Instagram right now. So that's where the links will be. Um, that's where I'll have up um, any of the replays, um, koala challenges, anything. We're gonna do another TikTok today, so I'll get ready for that.
0: You got <laughs> those. You got those jazz moves still from uh, eight years old.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, this. Um, I. I. I don't know if it'll ever get posted, but we tried another one um, where this guy tries to like. He's push pressed me before, but this like. Guy tried to power clean someone from the floor and we did it and we had a really bad like He dropped me on my head. I'm okay now. I'm okay But like I haven't posted it because it's gruesome like you can hear my head and we were like we're done. We're done with that
0: <laughs>
1: so Let's not I do not advise that to anyone at home He slipped and it fell and I had a headache. I don't have a concussion, but yeah
0: That's like jackass moves, right? I mean, you got to do one and then you're like, I'm out next next thing. (laughs) too old for this. Exactly. (laughs) Well, let's wind it down. This has been such a fun interview and I'm just so, I'm so grateful, you know, to have you share your path openly and honestly and vulnerably with everybody listening. I mean, we all learn from each other and in this time of what's going on out there more than ever, we need positive messages. So thanks for being a positive bright light
1: course. Of course. I've had a great time opening up and sharing and um, these things are really fun.
0: Well, there's one more question that I ask every guest who comes on the show. Yes. And that is, if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would yours be?
1: I would say, it's funny, you already touched on it when we talked. It's listening to your heart and your intuition. I think that can never steer you wrong, and any time I've gone wrong in my life is when I haven't listened to that and just trusted myself.
0: Oh, I love it. Trust yourself. well, thank you so much, Katie. Yes, all right thank you. I'm gonna be joining in on some of your dry land workouts, so look yes. out, love it. <laughs> all right, everybody. What a great episode. What a great person. Katie Hoff is going to continue to blow people away in this life. And uh, I just, I love her philosophy that what she's seeking is that feeling of exceptional. Swimming made her feel exceptional. And that is a feeling that we can replicate in other places, other times and other experiences in our lives. Um, so hold out hope and keep pushing because we all know that exceptional is right there. Sometimes right now in the current moment, sometimes right around the corner. Um, and at the end of the day, it's truly a mindset. I'll be curious what resonated with you in this, uh, interview. Sometimes when you have such high performers um, come on and share their stories, some people go, oh, right, whatever. You know, I'll never be that person, so I'm not going to relate. I felt uh, differently about Katie. I felt like she is very relatable, and I just love watching what she's doing out there in the world. If you have not gone over and checked out The Koala, head over to her Instagram. It's K. T Hoff seven and uh, check out her dry land workout. She's going to be wearing little skirt sports and some of them, which is really cool. All right, everybody, that's it for today. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there, and run this world, have a great workout and I'll see you next week.